Hello everybody, and welcome to From Plum Creek with Love, a little house on the prairie podcast. I'm your host, John Hernandez. I have a surprise. Actually, it's not really even that important, but I'm not currently in the Pacific Northwest. I'm actually out in the Kansas City, Missouri area at this time. Back at the end of July, I was contacted by a friend who lives in the Kansas City area, and she had invited me to help create two separate acts for a show that she was putting together. So I've spent the last few months when I'm not working on my podcast or working or playing my Switch even on creating choreography for a Silks trio where everyone has their own Silk and a solo piece. And a couple weeks ago, I was finally at that point where I was rehearsing the acts and having a good time running through them, which if you're not a performer, when you get to that point, you're in a good zone. So those performances will be happening this weekend, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, with Sunday being a matinee and not my favorite. And well, when I get back home from there, I have to immediately start rehearsals for two other acts that I will be doing here in the Pacific Northwest. When it rains, it pours. And with that being said, let's get started on today's recap. Today's episode is entitled The Long Road Home and debuted on March 3rd, 1976. The episode was written by John Hopkins and directed by Michael Landon. We begin with a posterior shot of a wagon. It's loaded with full sacks of, I'm not entirely sure, and it is heading into town, but not Walnut Grove. I'm just going to take a stab in the dark and say that we're in Mankato. And this wagon leads us right to Charles and Mr. Edwards and a man who is inspecting their, what I'm assuming is weed crop, because it's definitely not corn. And in the case of Mr. Edwards, it's definitely not watermelons. And as this man is continuing to sift through this crop, Charles wants to know, what do you say? And well, what Charles hears is not good news. He is offered seven cents a bushel. And Charles is shocked. Last year it was 34 cents a bushel. That's quite a drop. Although the crop is good quality, we're informed there's just too much of it in the market at this time. Charles bemoans this price and mentions how this is barely enough to pay back for the seed we bought. This is also the time where Charles mentions this man's name, Mr. Calder. And Mr. Calder states, well, I offer one cent more than most of the other buyers in the area. Disappointed, but really having no other option, Charles accepts this offer. He continues with, I hope next year will be better. And with a closing side remark, Charles states, what we really need is a new way to make a living. Hearing this, however, Mr. Calder mentions, well, if you're serious, you should head down to the hiring hall. There's a man from the railway there doing plenty of hiring. There's no harm in talking to him. 
And well, what have these two men got to lose? And heading down to the hiring hall, they are informed that there are positions for 12 builders, 2 powder men, 25 laborers, 2 swampers, not sure what that is, and a cook. There's a slight pause from the man before he mentions there is also a freight job. But Charles and Mr. Edwards are both advised against it. Why? It's transporting through mountain territory. Mountain territory. On the prairie. And we're told it's a very short job that consists of 10 days and the pay is $100. Plus free transportation out to the site. And what is the freight? Explosives. Will this make Charles a powder monkey? Hearing the word explosives, Charles mentions, I've worked with dynamite. Not in the same way Jack Peters worked with explosives. There's an older gentleman in the background who corrects Charles that it's not dynamite, it's blasting oil. It's different and it's highly sensitive. But $100 for 10 days? That will pay off all of that seed. Charles and Mr. Edwards accept the job on one condition. Instead of making the impossible trip to Walnut Grove and back to Mankato, they will just be picked up on Saturday morning in Springfield. The man at the hiring hall accepts this condition, and all he needs now is Charles' signature as well as Mr. Edwards, which is given in some nice cursive as well as a simple X from Mr. Edwards. From there, we cut to Charles arriving home at Plum Creek, and Caroline comes running out of the house as if she has not seen her husband in a century. I guess after her own near-death experience and also her children's near-death experience, Caroline is just living life for the moment. And upon greeting her husband, she can tell that something is up. Charles relays the news about the bumper crop and then mentions the new job with the railroad company that will only last 10 days. You know, like that time he went for a 100-mile walk off to a rock quarry and watched his friend get blown up. And when she's also informed that he will be paid $100, Caroline is a little astounded. Whoa. Why are they paying that kind of money? And Charles replies with, It's the railroads. They have money to spend how they want. He then mentions that he'll be leaving tomorrow morning, and all he really wants before he goes is a nice home-cooked meal. We are over at the Sanderson estate. I think it's the next day. Grace is packing up an extra sandwich for Mr. Edwards. John Jr., Carl, and Alicia are all sitting around the table. As Grace is packing those sandwiches into Mr. Edwards' bedroll, she also mentions she's included two pairs of socks and underwear too, and you better use them. It's a really sad kind of scene. Other than trips to Mankato and Springfield, I think this will be the longest that this new family has ever been apart. Mr. Edwards reminds the boys how to split up the chores around the house, and he tells everyone to take care of themselves, and he heads out the door. Making his way across the field, we then hear little Alicia yell out, Papa! Papa! 
and she runs out to him, gets picked up in his arms for one last beard scratch. Setting his daughter down, Mr. Edwards turns and leaves. And over at the Ingalls, it's a completely different scene. Caroline is waiting outside, and Charles is sneaking out of the house. The girls are still asleep, and they look too peaceful to wake up. It's a sad goodbye between the two of them, but no tears are shed as Caroline watches her man walk up the hill. And from there, we cut to the Springfield train station, and the conductor is yelling out, Get a plank. No, he's yelling all aboard. We then watch engine number three pulling away from the station. And sadly, Charles and Mr. Edwards are not on it because they come running out of the bushes and after that train. It's a great first day of work. And well, these men are picking up the pace just as much as that train is. They do, however, eventually make it into the passenger car and have a seat. And it's a rather fancy car, according to Mr. Edwards. And that's when the conductor comes over and inquires about tickets. Mr. Edwards hands over a piece of paper, and upon unfolding it, the conductor looks down and says, Oh, you're the hired help. You can't sit with us. This is the president's car. You know, first class. And they are ushered to the next car down. As they are making their way, Mr. Edward has to know, who's the president? P.W. Diamond, you know, the guy you met in the caboose, who's not pressing charges against your middle son for tampering with private property. When they arrive in the next car, it's mentioned that eh, it's not as fancy, but a seat is a seat. Until the conductor steps into the car and tells them to keep moving on to the next car. And what is the next car? It's the open air flat car with freight on top of it. There's already two men nestled into whatever spots are available. Mr. Edwards mentions that once it gets dark, they're going to freeze solid. And looking over at some lumber, that's when Charles comes up with a plan. And that plan is to bring some firewood into the passenger cars. The conductor says it's a very nice gesture, but they still have to stay on the flat car with the hired help. And although they argue that there are empty seats available, they are still ushered out. And doing probably one of the most childish things I've ever seen Charles do, him and Mr. Edwards dump those logs into those empty seats before heading outside. And well, outside, it started to rain. Mr. Edwards sticks his head out from underneath the tarp and poof, it's the next day and it's sunny. And the train is pulling to a stop in the middle of nowhere. And there's a man in a wagon waiting and he calls himself Fraser, not Fraser, Fraser. And he calls out for his hired help and all the men get down. There's Charles, Mr. Edwards, a man who calls himself Murphy and Bodine. They are told to make themselves cozy because it's an hour long ride to their destination. That's when the man who calls himself Bodine mentions how strange it is to build a factory out in the middle of nowhere. 
without turning around, Fraser then mentions, well, we had a factory in San Francisco till it blew up. It killed 16 people and flattened an entire city block. At this point, the train and the wagon move on to their destinations. And we arrive at that work site. And there is a big sign that says, Danger! Explosives! Keep out! And leading these men inside the barn, that's when Fraser digs into one of the open boxes and pulls out from all the hay a glass canister. This is the blasting oil. It's a clear liquid, and we are told it's made from nitric and sulfuric acids and sweet glycerin. It was discovered in France, 1846, and it was first used as fuel in household lamps. Fraser knows his stuff, apparently. Hearing this news, Mr. Edward states, well, if it burns in lamps, it must be safe. Fraser, holding up that glass canister, says, there are six ounces in this bottle. If it blows, we're gone. You'll be carrying five gallons in each wagon. Treat it with the utmost respect. The rest of the details about the job are then filled in. There will be two wagons with two men per wagon. One is driving and the other one is on foot with a shovel, filling up chuck holes, removing rocks, and warning the driver of anything, anything, that could seriously jar the wagon. In addition to that, they are also informed that they'll need to make sure that the oil doesn't overheat. And that's everything. And, well, I think Bodine has finally exhaled, and he taps out. It's too much stress for him. Anticipating this, Fraser mentions it's alright. I do have a replacement, and he has done this trip dozens of times. He knows what he's doing. And that's when the men are taken out to meet Henry Hill. And Henry is already setting to task with loading the blasting oil into one of the wagons. There's a nice hi and hello from Mr. Edwards and Charles. But Murphy flat out states, I don't work with anyone who looks like him. Oh, did I fail to mention Henry Hill is our first person of color we have seen in the series so far. And almost anticipating this, Fraser then states, suit yourself, you can leave with the other one in the morning. Changing the topic, Fraser then concludes, I don't expect no problems, but here are insurance policies in the amount of $5,000 to the heirs of accident victims. Looking at the policy, Murphy confirms $100 for 10 days. I reckon I can put up with it for 10 days. Hearing this, Fraser, turning to Henry, inquires, Is that all right with you? And that's when Henry Hill states, Like you reckon, I can put up with it for 10 days. There's a slight chuckle from Charles in the background, and the men all head into the office to sign some paperwork. There's a lasting glance between Henry and Murphy. We cut to evening. Charles and Mr. Edwards are in the barn. Mr. Edwards is making coffee and Charles is writing a letter. 
by a campfire inside the barn. I know they're both adults, but they're also on the verge of pulling a Mary. Looking over at his friend, Mr. Edwards states, you sure make that look easy. Writing isn't all that hard. And Mr. Edwards disagrees. Do you know how many pencils I broke learning? It's hard. I don't even know what to write. I get tongue-tied just as easily. Charles then offers to write something for Grace because he mentions you're going to have to say something about this insurance policy. And sitting back, Mr. Edwards agrees, but mentions how hard it is to say it out loud what he wants Charles to write down. Seeing this hesitation, Charles begins, Dear Grace, go from there. And Mr. Edwards continues with, uh, Things are fine, give the young ones a kiss, and... He goes silent for a moment and tilts his head down. I love her. Charles grins and writes that down in the letter. At this time, Henry comes into the barn and inquires about those letters so he can get them sent out in the mail. Mr. Edwards offers Henry a cup of coffee and Henry graciously accepts it and mentions how he'll go run inside to get his own cup. But Mr. Edwards is adamant, oh no, no, I have an extra one here that you can use. He's then invited to sit down and have a moment with the men. And Henry Hill looks a little surprised by this hospitality. And he does take that seat. And Mr. Edwards leans over, can I ask you something? If this is so dangerous, why do you come back for more? Henry Hill lets out a small laugh and says, I've got needs. Got lots of family. You know, aunts, uncles, cousins. He has no children. Besides, the job is always available because nobody will take it. Plus, it pays really well. But it can get tiring, and Henry Hill states, Lord willing, this will be my last trip. Charles finishes those letters. Henry thanks Mr. Edwards for the coffee and heads on out. But before completely leaving, he states that he'll take the lead wagon tomorrow till you get used to things. See you in the morning. And we cut to that next morning and a gate is opening up with that same danger explosives keep out sign. Henry is in the wagon. Murphy's on foot as they are heading out. And Mr. Edwards is on foot as Charles is driving the second wagon. And in passing, Fraser yells out, God go with you. We get a few scenes of the wagons traveling, and each one gets a little shake. It's a long walk, and not without obstacles, because before too long, Charles and Mr. Edwards, who have taken the lead, come across a downed tree. And, well, there is no cross-cut saw, and the combined strength of all their horses can't move that tree, and this road is pretty narrow, so they can't turn around. So they wait to see what Henry has to say. And what does Henry decide to do? He decides to go off-road and up a hill. Well, you gotta do what you gotta do. Henry and Murphy, H&M, are driving the four horses as Charles and Mr. Edwards are carefully guiding that wagon up the hill. And they finally make it. Murphy looks terrified. Henry, on the other hand, 
instructs Charles and Mr. Edwards to take the wagon a little ways down the road. He then tells Murphy that if Murphy can handle those horses, he can handle the wagon guiding it up the hill. Murphy seems very relieved to be as far away from that blasting oil as much as he can. He even goes as far as to thank Henry for this offer. And Henry brushes it off and says, of course, didn't you know we were created for this type of work? He chuckles and heads down to the wagon. But together with Murphy driving those horses and Henry pulling that wagon along, they complete the task. And you know what? Things seem to be moving slightly progressive until Henry offers Murphy some water from his own cantina. And Murphy quickly turns it down and yells out, I got my own. Putting the cat back on his own canteen, Henry reminds Murphy it's his turn to drive. I'll be way out in front of you to make sure you don't hit any of those rough spots. That nervous expression is once again present on Murphy's face. And we have a number of lingering shots of Henry on foot and Murphy on the wagon looking scared. And the road goes on. We cut to the Walnut Grove post office. Grace Snyder Edwards is opening up a mailbag. Caroline is there and, well, Grace then takes the mail that was in the bag, splits it in two, and hands half of it over to Caroline. I'm sure there must be a law against that. And together, the two of them sift through those letters until each one of them finds an envelope with their name on it. Grace, being a little surprised, chuckles when she finds that letter from Mr. Edwards. Charles must have put him up to this. With their letters, they open them up and they start to read them. And ooh, it looks as though they just read about those insurance policies. Before this moment, Neither one of them knew exactly the extent of the work Charles and Mr. Edwards were heading out to do. He said it was just another freighting job. And in silence, Grace returns to her work and Caroline heads home. Back at Plum Creek, Caroline tucks Laura and Mary into bed. And that's when they are both asking about the letter Caroline had received. Ooh. She starts to read the letter, and then she claims she can't read the rest of the letter due to the poor lighting up in the loft. But really, she's just omitting the news about the insurance policy and the job description. And skipping down to the end of the page, she reads, Everything is fine. Love, Pa. Now off to sleep. As Caroline is turning out the light, Mary yells out, I'm sure glad everything is all right. Kisses and good night. We're back out on the road and Henry is checking the temperature of the blasting oil and we learn that the temperature has risen 20 degrees since that morning and their water supply is running low. Watering down the hay surrounding the blasting oil is the method they use to keep it cool. Unfortunately, the water supply that was traveling with H&M has a bad spigot and has been losing water. Murphy takes the blame and says he didn't close the valve tight enough. And Henry says, nah, it's mine. I should have just replaced that spigot. 
And well, then something snaps in Murphy and he gets up and says, just say it's my fault. I don't need a black man defending me. Slightly annoyed and also making sure that the blasting oil doesn't go off, Charles offers up some of the spare water they have in their own water barrel. Murphy jumps out of the wagon while Charles and Henry continue to discuss mm, replenishing the water supply. Henry mentions there's a well at the end of a road that has a hard to notice turnoff, but he'll make sure to leave a note when Charles and Mr. Edwards gets to that point. In the meantime, Charles assures Henry not to let Murphy bother him too much. And Henry states, people like that stopped bothering me the day I was born. Once again, this elicits a nice chuckle from Charles. And heading over to the wagon with Murphy, Charles is just listening. Ugh, is he barking orders? He acts all high and mighty. Acts like he's not even afraid. Does he know what he's carrying in those wagons? He continues. You want to know what the problem with this country is? Lincoln died four years too late. I fought in this war to free the likes of him, and I killed better men in that war. And Charles? He's not having this. Grabbing a hold of Murphy's collar and pulling him in tight, Charles states, you may have killed better men, but none better than Henry Hill. And you want to know what the problem is with this country? I'm looking at it right now. Releasing him, the two men walk to that wagon in silence. We cut to that fork in the road, and it's actually pretty obvious to see it. But Mr. Edwards and Charles do find a note from Henry on the signpost, telling them the well at the end of this road has dried up. The two of them exchange some quick banter before continuing the trip. And Mr. Edwards is finding stones and tossing them, and, well... It's just slow moving, and eventually they meet up with H&M at a really nice size watering hole. With one calamity, thankfully avoided, it is break time, and Charles runs down to that water and jokes with Mr. Edwards, you're using the soap, and is thankful that they didn't have to ride in that wagon together. Murphy's in the foreground, staring out into space, and Henry mentions that there's only two more days. And it's all easy country. You're as good as home. Then there's gunfire. There are two men on horseback with some pretty thick accents. They're father and son. And well, they have come to rob this little caravan. They're looking at the ropes. They're looking at other supplies. And finally, they mention, well, what's inside the crates? Yelling out from down by the watering hole, Henry says, That's all blasting oil. You know how the railroad is taking down the mountains? This is what they're using. Well, these two then get dollar bills in their eyes. That means it must be worth a lot. Just then, a barefoot Mr. Edwards steps forward towards the wagon. Please take it. I just want to be able to sleep and eat again. Just take it. P.S. Mr. Edwards has stuck his hand inside the wagon and pulls out one of those corked glass bottles. As brief as it is, we come to find out one of these robbers is Homer. He's the son. And, well, he looks freaked out and flat out then refuses to rob them. They both leave. And, well, 
Murphy is also freaking out with Mr. Edwards' actions, with the bottle in hand. In fact, there are a few moments where Mr. Edwards almost drops this. But we come to find out it's no big deal. Because this particular jar is actually corn whiskey that Mr. Edwards had distilled himself. So is Mr. Edwards enjoying a nightcap at the end of the day? Regardless, Mr. Edwards says, let's hitch up and get going. He uncorks the bottle, but he then hands it to Murphy. You need this more than I do. And we see them all leave that watering hole. We cut to Plum Creek and Caroline is coming home. And upon opening that door and stepping inside, she is greeted with a table slash kitchen that is an absolute disaster. Caroline is shaking. She yells out, with your father away, why are you making things so difficult? Just then, Carrie and Laura step out, followed by Mary, who is holding a cake. We then get a happy birthday, Ma. And apparently, Caroline has completely forgotten about her birthday. She is told to make a wish, and Laura wants to know what it is. And Mary reminds us that rule about making wishes on your candles. You can't share them. However, turning to Caroline, Mary states, I bet I can guess what she is wishing for. We get a close-up of Caroline's face with a bashful smile. From there, we're back out in the middle of nowhere and engine number three is coming to a stop. I guess all the work is over because there is Charles... Mr. Edwards, Henry Hill, and Murphy all getting on the train. In fact, Mr. Edwards states, I'm going to go ahead and buy a ticket. And turning to Henry, he states, Do you want to sit inside? And well, Henry, turning to Mr. Edwards, We'll see. The four men get inside the passenger car and find a seat. And the conductor, same one as earlier, comes over and gives a sour expression to Mr. Edwards. Mr. Edwards, oh, don't worry, we can afford tickets, we got money. But the conductor, well, he can't sit here in the passenger car. He's looking at Henry. And before anyone can argue why not, Henry Hill gets up and says, I like fresh air, and he moves out to the flat car. He finds a spot, and he's getting cozy, and that's when Charles and Mr. Edwards step out. And moments later... Murphy also comes out of the passenger car and takes up seats next to these men. And looking down the line, Murphy says, He booted me out too. Found out I was Irish. And the group erupts into laughter. We get about 25 seconds of them laughing before the train starts up and is sending those men on their way home. I just have to mention, this is by far my shortest recap in quite some time. And it wasn't for a lack of trying to make it longer. It just, well, we'll get to more of that when we get to finally reviewing and rating this episode. So, what's a swamper? It was one of those jobs that was listed at the hiring hall. And looking it up, Google kept correcting me and was curious if I meant Swampert, the Pokemon. And no, I just wanted to know what a Swamper was. And according to careers 
org. The occupation is very similar to that as someone who works with railroad brake, signals, and switch operators. So possibly the man in the runaway caboose who was at Tower Junction? Maybe he was a swamper? An overview of the job description has it listed as operate railroad track switches, couple or uncoupling, rolling stock to make up or break up trains, signal engineers by hand or flagging, inspect couplings, air hoses, journal boxes, and handbrakes. Meanwhile, MiriamWebster.com has Swamper listed as an inhabitant of swamps or lowlands, one familiar with swampy terrain, and lastly, a general assistant, handyman, or helper. And finally, the Oxford English Dictionary has Swamper as a worker who helps to clear away trees in a swamp or forested area. There are also a few sites that list Swamper as somebody who helps to unload trucks. And I, I don't know, I guess maybe I'm a reverse Swamper? Because years ago, I did work for FedEx Ground loading trailers. And as somebody at that time who stood at 5'5 and less than 120 pounds, filling up an entire trailer with boxes, I look back on it now and yeah, it's a little comical. Oh, and lastly, there was the use of the phrase bumper crop, which when I looked that up, um, when it's used as an adjective, it means exceptionally large, fine, or successful. And here's also something a little interesting. The explosion that Mr. Fraser is talking about is actually based on a real life event. So if you were to look up April 16th, 1866, you will find information about an explosion caused by blasting oil in San Francisco that killed, and here's where it gets a little odd, depending on your sources, some say 10 people, some say 14. And according to Mr. Fraser, it was 16. But I do enjoy these real life moments in history being incorporated into the prairie verse and with that let's finally get to reviewing and rating this episode if i had one word to describe this episode it would be underdeveloped all right storyline a charles and mr edwards need a paycheck they accept a job they fulfill it they go home, everything is fine. Nothing wrong there. Storyline two, Henry Hill. And I actually wanted to spend more time with Mr. Hill. We know right off the bat, he's not going to take any crap from anyone. Plus, Mr. Fraser is there to also back him up. And although we are told he has no children, he does have family. But currently, where does that family reside? And if he has been doing this work with Fraser for so long, how did those two men meet? Because clearly there is some sort of relationship between Henry Hill and Fraser. And we get that right off the bat when Fraser tells Murphy that if he does not want to work with Henry Hill, he's more than happy to leave. Albeit, Fraser only wants the job completed. But again, if Henry Hill has done this route numerous times, 
him and Fraser have to have some sort of relationship. And there seem to be moments when Murphy and Henry Hill are about to, you know, get along. But there seems to be something that Murphy just won't let go of. And if Murphy was fighting in the Civil War, what side was he fighting on? And once again, what experience does Murphy have with Henry Hill that by the end of the episode, he flips his attitude towards Henry Hill? There's, there's just a lot of potential for this. And sadly, we didn't get it. But I'll tell you what we did get. We got a lot of those scenes of those wagons slowly making their way across the prairie. And, well, then finally, one, what was up with the father-son duo trying to rob this little caravan? The only purpose this scene really had was Mr. Edwards being the comic relief and essentially saving the day. And even if Mr. Edwards distilled his own potato whiskey, which I'm sure that is a lot more effort than it sounds, why is his whiskey being stored in pretty much the exact same bottle as the blasting oil? And truthfully, would you want to have a hangover if you were transporting this stuff across this terrain? And then sadly, Caroline. She was in maybe four or five scenes in this entire episode. And in each one of those scenes, she played her emotions really over the top. Coming out to greet Charles as if she hasn't seen him in years, followed by a not entirely tearful goodbye. Her shock upon reading about the insurance policy. I mean, after she reads about that, she just doesn't talk anymore and she just leaves. And then she gets super upset at the kids when they make her a birthday cake. And albeit, she didn't know about it, and that's the last we see of her. I don't know. It, it just seems as though in this episode in particular, Caroline is mostly an afterthought. I mean, two episodes ago, she was hallucinating and ready to cut open her leg, doing whatever she had to do to survive. And here, she's just a mess. What I kind of also didn't like was at the beginning of the episode, well, after they've accepted the job and finally caught up with the train, Mr. Edwards and Charles are ushered from one car to the next to the next. Again, simply referred to as the hired help. And in truth, at the end, they offer to buy tickets and be regular patrons of the railroad. But that comes around again at the end when Henry Hill tries to sit with his co-workers in that train car and is immediately ushered out. I don't know. I just don't really like this comparison because in the end, Charles and Mr. Edwards, no matter what, could always buy a ticket. And they choose to stand or sit in solidarity with Henry Hill when they are moved to that flat car. It's just never really discussed. Mr. Edwards seems like a very inquisitive fellow. Why doesn't he ask Henry Hill about some experiences? Give everyone a better perspective of what's going on. But speaking of perspective, what's going on, and Mr. Edwards, this week's Little House moment does go to Mr. Edwards juggling that assumed bottle of blasting oil. Mr. Edwards is definitely delivering some high-anxiety theatrics tossing around that bottle, and the expression on Homer, 
who is the son of the robbing duo. Those expressions were perfect. And then to finish up that scene with Murphy then freaking out, concluding with, of course, the confession that it was the distilled whiskey and then offering it up to Murphy. And so let's finally get to rating this episode. I love that finally, after a season and a half, we finally delve into people of color, civil rights, and racism. But like I have already mentioned, it's not fully developed, and there is definitely some missed opportunities here. And once again, another missed opportunity, Caroline. And I just have to say, I laughed really hard when they mentioned that they were out on the prairie blowing up mountains to clear it out for the railroad. And truthfully, I really don't understand why they had to include scenes with the kids. The time spent with the kids could have easily been used to, again, talk about things with Henry Hill. So we ended up having just too much in this episode. It just kind of took away from the central theme. So only slightly disappointed, and I still enjoyed the episode overall. So that is why I am going to give The Long Road Home four bonnets. And again, those are some of my thoughts and feelings about this episode, and I wouldn't mind hearing, in fact, I would love to hear anyone else's thoughts or feelings about this episode or any previous episode. Once again, you can reach out to me at the Gmail and Instagram account from Plum Creek with love. And I know I say it week after week to leave a rating or write a small review. I would greatly appreciate that. And before we conclude this episode, I just have to mention that there is a strong possibility that next week's episode will not come out on Monday, but actually will come out on Tuesday. With doing a show and traveling, I just might not get it done in time. So, fair warning. And with that, we come to the end of another episode of From Plum Creek with Love, a Little House on the Prairie podcast. I'm your host, John Hernandez, and until next time, take care.